0: hope you enjoy this Palm Sunday message that I preached on a few minutes ago at Grace Evangelical Church in Congo Town. A Palm Sunday message. God bless you, and hope you have a great Easter season. Gladys Elward was a woman from England. She wanted to be a missionary. She felt called to be a missionary, but she was rejected by every mission board that she went to, even the great uh, overseas missionary fellowship headed by Hudson Taylor in China. She wanted to go to China. They rejected her. They said that, actually, she failed out of missionary school. (laughs) She She couldn't make grades, and so she failed, and then when they interviewed her, they said, you're not fit to be a missionary but she was called she knew she was called and so she found one way and another to find her way to china she saved the money and then she found the cheapest route available to take the trans-siberian railway across europe and across russia then she arrived in the middle of winter in heavy snow the train stopped because fighting was going on between the Chinese and the Russians. And she nearly froze to death that night, walking from one train station to the next, but she was determined. And she found eventually found her way to China, and uh, it took her a month to find the place that she was supposed to be. and. God used her mightily. She's one of the great missionary heroes of the 20th century. In that in the midst of the, Ch- the Sino-Japanese War, when the Japanese had invaded China, she was able to uh, take 100, over 100 children and take them across a mountain range to safety during that time. Uh, Avoiding the Japanese army and the Japanese bombers that were everywhere. Uh, One of the greatest missionaries of the 20th century failed out of missionary school and was rejected by every agency that she applied to. You know, when God calls us to do something, we need to ask not men and women. We need to ask God, have you called me? Because if God's called you, there's nothing that can stop it. And so we come to a passage today where God sends His servants to do something for Him so that He may come into the city and show symbolically who He is and fulfill Scripture. So today I want us to look at Luke chapter 19, the story of the triumphal entry. I'm going to begin reading... At verse twenty-eight, I'm going to read down to verse forty-four. This is a passage that is not the most popular one preached. I think they, we usually preach Matthew. This one is a little has a little bit different uh, storyline, and so let's um, let's read beginning at verse twenty-eight because there's some very important things here. As, after Jesus had said this, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem, and as he approached Bethphage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you'll find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? Tell him, the Lord needs it. And those who were sent ahead went and found it just as he told them. As they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, Why are you untying the colt? And they replied, The Lord needs it. They brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt, and put Jesus on it. And as he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. And when he came near the place where the road goes down to the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, (laughs) if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. As he approached Jerusalem, he saw the city and wept over it and said, If you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring peace, but now it's hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you, and encircle you, and hem you in on every side, They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls, and will not leave one stone on another, because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. May the Lord bless the reading, teaching, preaching of this word. Let's look at the context of this passage, because it's very important. What we see here in this passage is that Jesus has just come from Jericho. And in Jericho something very famous happened there. That's if you just flip back a, a few verses. You'll see at the beginning of 19. Is where he encountered and ate a meal. With a notorious felon. A rogue of the highest degree. Zacchaeus. A government, corrupt government official. And he had made himself wealthy off the poor that were around him. And so in in that passage, we see that Jesus draws us to his presence and to his purpose. Then he tells a story related to what he had just done. And in this story, the parable of the ten miners... He, gives, he tells us that I am giving you an assignment until I return. I'm going. I'm going to return. I'm going to give you an assignment until I return. And then we come to the triumphal entry. And at this place, this is where Jesus gives them an assignment to test them. And then he fulfills the. The, pro- the prophecy of the prophet Zechariah. Now throughout his gospel. Luke is doing something. You find it everywhere. In the gospel of Luke. He emphasizes the importance. Of walking in faith. And avoiding unbelief. He's made it clear. That every individual. Who meets Jesus. Must make a decision about him. You can't leave it. And choose not to make a decision, Christ must be either received or rejected. You have to either deny him or you believe him. And Luke shows that. And so when we come to this place, we see that Jesus is now in the third phase of this gospel. He is now going almost at the gate of Jerusalem. And here we see him going toward that gate. And so we see three things I see in this passage. We see an, the importance here of trusting the King in different ways. And so when we see Jesus entry into Jerusalem and the people acclaiming as him as Messiah, but they their 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 shouts do. Reflect the fact that they don't understand who Jesus is and what he is about to do and that failure will soon result in disaster for the nation of Israel so picturing the the utter necessity of every heart to return to God Luke makes it clear Jesus again comes in and we see in verses 45 to 48 we see that he cleanses the temple in fact he says then he entered the temple area and began driving out those who were selling he, it pictures the fact that we, we are people who desperately need our lives cleaned out of sin so that we can receive a savior and the, the fury of the response that he receives in verse 47 Everyone Every day he was teaching at the temple But the chief priests, the teachers of the law And the leaders among the people Were trying to kill him Yet they could not Find a way to do it Because all the people hung on his words Wow So their fu- the fury The fury of religious people Boy I felt it Pastoring I know the fury of a religious person Who has not one drop of gospel in their lives. And those people will become determined. To destroy what they are against. Religious people are the most determined to kill. It seems sometimes. And so Jesus encounters that. And in the midst of this religious opposition. And the great task that he has before him. We see three things. First, we need—we see it's not working. You should try it again, please. We first we trust the King who sends us. We trust the King who sends us. Look with me in uh, verse 28 to 36. This is from 28 to 36, where we trust the King. Who sends us? Now, if you're writing down the parallel passage and you're taking notes, the parallel for this is Matthew 21, the first nine verses, and Mark 11, the first ten verses. And so we see these here Matthew 21, the first nine verses, Mark 11, the first ten verses. So let's just get with the story. Uh, Jesus is arriving from Jericho where he's just had his interview with. Zacchaeus, and he spends the night in Bethany, we know from John chapter 12, verse 1, at the home of his friends, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, whom he has recently raised from the dead. And on the morning of his triumphal entry into Jerusalem, Jesus sends two disciples to the, it says here, the first village, the first village that you come to is Bethphage, to Procure a donkey colt. We know it's a donkey from Mark 11 verse 2. And then Jesus heads into the city from Bethany. And though we call it the triumphal entry, that's the term we use, Jesus is deeply aware that the cheering multitudes, they have no real faith in Jesus. They have no real commitment to Jesus. It's like they're celebrating their favorite football team. They, they don't really, they cheer because they are celebrating Jesus' entry into Jerusalem. But then you look at the contrast of Jesus crying over the city. So while the city celebrates his entry, he's crying over them. Because he sees what is reality. And so, so Luke does not mention to us, Luke does not mention to us um, the prophecy from Zechariah chapter 9. But in Zechariah 9, it's a clear passage of Scripture that, that focuses on Christ Jesus and this particular day. Let me just read it to you briefly because it's important that you understand that Jesus is being very careful to fulfill Scripture. Zechariah 9, 9 and 10 Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion Shout, daughter of Jerusalem See, your king comes to you Righteous and having salvation Gentle and riding on a donkey On a colt, the foal of a donkey He will proclaim peace to the nations And as for you, because of the blood of my covenant with you I will free your prisoners from the waterless pit. Return to your fortress, O prisoners of hope. Even now I announce that I will restore twice as much to you. And so here we see Jesus fulfilling that exact prophecy. And so even though Luke doesn't mention it as Matthew does in chapter 21, verse 5, there's little doubt that Jesus is, is, is... Fulfilling Zechariah's vision of a humble and righteous king who comes bringing salvation and peace. And so when he says this, he's not only picturing the first coming of Jesus, but the second as well. The second coming as well. Because he's coming this time humble on the foal of a donkey. Next time he will come riding on a horse. This is a civil... Entrance. The next time will be a military entrance. And so he's coming in. Verse 29, we see that these two villages, Bethphage and Bethany, they're villages along the road from Jericho, about two miles east of Jerusalem. So they're going uphill from far below sea level up to Jerusalem, which is... Um, at, to the Mount of Olives, which is 2,600 feet above sea level. So I'm talking about hard walk up here. It's uphill the whole way in a steep journey. And so this, this home where the, he spends the night with his friends is really, I think he probably really treasured those moments because the work was about to begin, the unpleasant work that was coming. And so as he, he stayed with them that week until the, the, uh, until the supper. So it is this Mount of Olives that's overlooking Jerusalem and the Temple Mount from the east. And it's the mount on which the Garden of Gethsemane is located. It's significant that Jesus is going to ascend this same Mount of Olives with a promise to return in the same way. Acts 11 1. What the angel said. The prophet Zechariah predicted that when Messiah returns, Zechariah fourteen four, he will appear on the Mount of Olives. So this place is precious to him. Notice in verse 30 that they find a colt tied there. That colt is not a horse, but of a donkey. We see that in both Zechariah 9 and Matthew 21. Now, the use of the foal of a donkey is important because it points to the fact that he's a king because Solomon rode in to his coronation as king on a donkey's foal. Rode in on a donkey. And in Genesis 49, verses 9 to 11, when Jacob predict, made predictions about each of his sons, over the over Judah, from whom the tribe, from whom Jesus is, Jacob predicted that that um, this line would tether his colt to a vine. That is, that this colt would be so gentle, even though he's never been ridden, he would be under such authority, you, even just tying him up with a vine, not even a rope. He won't move. He will be completely obedient. So there's no no avoiding the fact that there's a strong royal focus Anna. that this this person is royal. This person is Messiah who is entering Jerusalem. This man, Jesus. Yeah, and so even though some people kept animals for hire, but this one was probably not the case. Jesus certainly didn't order his uh, disciples to steal a colt, but he he did commandeer it. And so the background is that a person, a person of authority or a king has the right to borrow an animal for immediate service. Not only is Jesus' authority as Messiah asserted here, he says, the Lord needs it. But he's also, we see his omniscience and his divine knowledge and foresight when he tells them, when you get there, you'll find a donkey and you need to ask. If you're asked, what are you doing with it? Tell him the Lord needs it. He gives them that. What does that tell us? It tells us that when God sends us. He sends us right. And when he sends us. He sends us with provision. He provides for us. When he sends us. He gives us what we need to do. What we need to do. Then in verse 30. I want you to notice that this cult is a cult. That has never been ridden. A cult that has never been ridden. That points. That points. To first, it's purity. It's fit for a king. No one else has ever spoiled the back of that colt. He's the first one. The Old Testament would often, it demanded animals that had never been worked, never been put on a yoke, never been ridden in order to be a pure sacrifice. You see that in Numbers 19 and Deuteronomy 21. But the second thing that's even more powerful here is that, an uh, animal like this that's never been ridden is not going to accept anything on its back. They have to be broken. They have to be trained. They have to learn that they can carry something or they will, the, because they don't like it. The, initially, they have to be what we call broken. So these animals then have, do not allow someone just to sit on their back and ride, it will butt them off, it will kick them off. This one didn't do that. Did you notice? One which had never been written. Look at the submission of this unbroken animal to the one who has divine authority. It recognizes who this man is. The animal knows better. like, Like the story of Balaam and the donkey, this animal knows better than the people who he is. And so... Ride an unbroken animal, one who can demand instant and full submission and authority under the authority of the Lord. And so we see something similar as well in 1 Samuel when you have two cows which had calved but they'd never been yoked were picked to carry the ark of the Lord, the ark of the covenant back to the people of Israel. And that authority, that they came right back to where they were supposed to be without never having been uh, uh, put on a yoke and having just calved. In other words, they've left their calf behind. What, what, what cow is going to leave their calf? But because those... So the significance of that is they left their calf and they carried the Ark of the Covenant because it was under, they were under authority of the Lord to take that thing back. The same idea... Now, donkeys were never used for military. They were used for only civil processions. So this is not a triumphal entry in the sense of a Roman army giving a triumphal procession. This is Jerusalem receiving a peaceful king. What does this tell us? That when he sends us, he sends us in peace. A donkey that's never been ridden, what does it teach us? When he sends us? He sends us with his authority. Why are you taking that coat? The Lord needs it. You don't see any argument. There's no palava. See that? And then verse 36. You notice that the cloaks are on the road. The spreading of the garment is indicating that they are building up the road. And they're cleaning it for him. Their homage, this person of great rank is coming. And it recalls the great reception of King Jehu in 2 Kings chapter 9. Who came and took the throne of Samaria from Jezebel. And so when God sends us, he sends us to prepare the way for the king. You know what it also teaches us? It teaches us that we can trust God's word. We can trust God's word. Zechariah predicted this exact event. And it played out to the very smallest place. The second thing we see here in this passage is that we need to trust the king who is worthy to be praised. We trust the king who is worthy to be praised. William Barclay, the commentator, sets the backstory for Jesus' entry into Jerusalem. Remember, by this time, according to John 11, he had raised Lazarus from the dead and they had put a price on Jesus' head. He had, there was a bounty for getting rid of him. Who would bring him in? So, it would have been natural for a man like Jesus if he must go to Jerusalem at all and most people would avoid Jerusalem if he were to go, he would slip in unseen and hidden in some secret way in the back streets he would get in. He would enter such a way that That no one would see him. But in this way he enters with a price on his head. He enters with everyone focused on him. He's not afraid. He has nothing to fear. It's breathtaking to think that a man with a, a price on his head, an outlaw, deliberately riding into a city in such a way that every eye is looking at him. It's impossible to, William Barclay says, to... To, to exaggerate the sheer courage of Jesus. We can trust this King. He's worthy to be praised because he's courageous. He went to the cross for us. He stood up against religious bigotry. He went to the grave for us and on the third day he stood up for us. He went and conquered sin and death and the grave. For us, we see a picture of him in Isaiah when we see a warrior coming back from battle. And they said, Who is this we see? And he says, They look and they said, Well, oh, he's a warrior, but he's dressed in the robe of a high priest, but he has a sword in his hand. Who is this? And then this warrior speaks. He said, I've just come from destroying my enemies. Jesus was not. Uh, A weak man. He was a strong man. And we see that he was a brave man. The second thing we see in verse 38. Is that they say. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king. Luke makes them say. Who comes in the name of the Lord. That phrase is drawn directly from Psalm 118. And it links directly also to Zechariah 9. With its messianic significance. In Psalm 18, that psalm celebrates the return of a king who is a descendant of David and his return from battle. And his ascent, he's going up to the temple to worship. So Psalm 18 is a prophecy of the return of Christ. And in Judaism, it was one of the great praise psalms from Psalm 113 to 118, what they call the Hallel that was used at the Feast of Tabernacles and at the Passover. The Passover being the festival that they're getting ready to celebrate there. And it celebrates every spring around the time we celebrate our Resurrection Sunday. The disciples saw clearly, it was so clear, the Messianic significance of Jesus and the Messiah and His first coming and His second coming. They saw it. And in verse 39, we, Luke is the only one who tells us that everyone was not celebrating this, uh, this appearance. Jesus, The Pharisees asked Jesus to silence this crowd and restrain them from such outbursts of enthusiasm. That's the way religious people operate, isn't it? They don't want you to get too excited about your, your, your salvation. They don't want you to be too excited about, uh, about the joy of, That you have in your heart over what the Lord's done for you. They want you to keep quiet. I was sitting with um, an Imam a few months ago. We were doing a Bible study, and I was mostly observing. And the older Imam spoke to me, and I think I've told you this before. He spoke to me and he said, I learned that you people in your churches. You sing. I said, yeah, we do. We sing. We sing a lot. And he said, we don't do anything like that. No. I said, why? He says, well, we're very solemn. We have to be very quiet. We have to be very solemn. There's nothing wrong with being solemn before God. There are times when we need to be quiet and listen. Right? Because when you're in the presence of of an important person, you keep your mouth shut. Right? But there are times to celebrate as well. But he had said, We are always solemn. We never sing. We never celebrate at all. I said, Why don't you celebrate? He said, Because we don't know what's going to happen to us. And we want to be careful around Allah. I said, Well, I want to tell you something. Not only do we sing, he said, I learned you people also dance in your service. I said, Yeah, especially West Africa, we dance. So, you want to know why we dance? I said, Yeah, I would like to know why you would be so disrespectful. I said, I will tell you why. Because we know that our salvation is a gift that we cannot earn, and we celebrate the fact that He's given it to us, and we can be confident in the salvation that He's laid before us. And they just looked at me like a child looking at another child who has a lollipop. And he didn't say nothing. And I pray that God will work that in their hearts. You see, Jesus said to the Pharisees who said, no, don't have, stop this loud noise. Jesus said, friend, These stones are going to cry out if if you don't allow this to happen. The whole creation, this is the application. All of creation is waiting for the redemption. Paul tells us in Romans chapter 8. It's clear. They're all waiting for the sons and daughters of Christ, of God, to come forth and to be redeemed. Because when we're redeemed, they're redeemed. Because He gave us the authority on the planet. You see, this is exciting. He tells... The Pharisees, that if the people and the children keep silent, the rocks will cry out. The prophet Habakkuk says that the stones of the wall will cry out in judgment against Babylon in Habakkuk chapter 2. And Jesus takes that prophecy of Habakkuk and he brings it back and puts it right in their belly and says, They're going to cry out, but it's not going to be in judgment. It's going to be in celebration of me. And so we see this creation, this creation. Isaiah talks about it in Isaiah 55 when he says that the hills and the mountains will burst burst forth in song and the trees of the field will even clap their hands, rejoicing at the deliverance that God's going to bring in the redemption. And then the third thing that we see here is that we need to trust the king who brings hope to a doomed world. We need to trust the king who brings hope to a redeemed world. That's verses 41 to 44. Look at this. He says that he wept over it. Jesus' prediction and his tears recall the Old Testament prophets who often wept over Israel's sin and the judgment that was coming. We see it in 2 Kings 8, Jeremiah 6, 8, 14, Lamentations 1, Zechariah the priest at the beginning of Luke in Luke chapter one he praised God who had visited his people but Jesus said you did not recognize the time of my coming to you and so at the beginning of Luke and at the end of Luke we see that Zechariah who is a priest who's in the very presence of the holy place doing the incense before the altar he is operating in unbelief about a son. And over here is a 14 year old girl just doing her thing at home. And the angel Gabriel appears to her. And she responds in faith and says, Let it be to me as, as you have said. They question it. And so Luke makes a really clear difference between these two. And Jesus says to them at this place, You didn't recognize the time. Of my coming. Of God's coming to you as a nation. Let me ask you. If the Lord. When the Lord works in your life. Do you recognize. His work. Are you paying attention. Are you living a life. That's free enough. From daily sin. That when the Holy Spirit speaks to you. When the Lord opens an opportunity to you, when a, a time to share the gospel appears before you, when you see an opportunity to glorify the Lord in some way, do you recognize it? Do you take advantage of it? Do you make the most of every opportunity? Colossians chapter 4 verse 5 and 6 tells us that we need to make the most of every opportunity. In other words, literally we need to intensively buy every opportunity. Jesus says in verses 43 and 44 that your enemies will build an embankment against you. In fact, that prediction literally came true in just about 40 years later in 70 under the general and the future emperor of the Roman Empire, Titus, the son of Vespasian. He destroyed the city and he did it by building up a hill. The wall was in. They couldn't make it over the wall, so they built a hill up to the wall so that they could run up and jump over. And they built the embankment. The historian Josephus describes the walls and the embankment that was built to prevent the escape of the Jewish inhabitants so that all of them could be liquidated. Jesus was not the first to predict Jerusalem's destruction. Isaiah did it. Jeremiah did it. Ezekiel did it. All the same thing, the same event. In verse 44, Jesus cries over Jerusalem and says, "They would dash you to the ground and your children. Josephus tells us in great detail in his history of the gruesome fighting and the suffering of the inhabitants of Jerusalem during the three-year siege of the city from 67 to 70. Many people died in a terrible famine. Others were killed by desperate bandits within the city, but thousands were slaughtered by the Romans when they breached the walls. Josephus says the number was as high as 1.1 million. Nearly the population of Monrovia died. Today, we, some historians give us don't think that Josephus' numbers were correct. They think that because they live 2,000 years later, they know better than Josephus who lived right at the time of what happened. But, um, but, but at the same time, I would take Josephus' numbers, because he's closer to the event. But you see, what does this tell us about our hope for a do- in a doomed world? It tells us that we can have hope because he cares for us through suffering and tragedy. His heart breaks over us. He, his heart breaks over the death, the unnecessary death of people right now in Ukraine. The even sarcastic way that they butcher people. Jesus says that not one stone will be left on another. Did you notice that first time he mentioned stones, they're they're crying out in praise? Now he says not one stone will be left on another. A a total devastation. Some say that Jesus was not speaking literally or, or he was mistaken. But according to the historian Josephus, Titus demolished the entire city but left a few important towers and part of the west wall standing as a garrison for his troops. Today, that is the wall, that is the western wall where you see the Jews praying. The one Titus, the only reason that wall standing is because Titus chose to leave it there. And that's where the Jews pray today. But Jesus was speaking of the temple and the whole city. He leveled that city to the ground. And for decades, no Jew was allowed to approach its site. What does this tell us about our hope in a doomed world, in the midst of a doomed world? It tells us that we, today, as Christ people, we are privileged to, to present him to a world that is doomed. There's no future in this world except through him. And who has the light to offer? We do. May our generation prove wiser than those who were in the first century of Jerusalem. And and recognize the time of God's coming to us. Last weekend, we were in Arlington among the Gola Junior Medical outreach. And Reverend Pay asked for someone to open in prayer. We were in Jalabah. He asked for someone to open our time in prayer. He was about to give the gospel, about to give a presentation of the gospel and talk to them about how the. Outreach would <laughs> run, and he asked for someone to pray. And the town chief, who is the the clan chief, who is the imam, jumped up and said, "Let's pray." And he's looking at him. And what do they pray? They pray the first surah. What does the first surah say? It the um, Al fatiha It says. Lord, we are in the darkness. Please show us the light. And then Reverend Pace stepped up and he shared the light. And in front of the clan chief, the imam, and the elders in the town, 14 people, many of them women, raised their hands in front of him. I'm telling you. That we have a hope in a doomed world. A friend of mine told me that if you have a Muslim friend, you have a person who's in a cage trying to get out. Find a way to help them get out. They won't out. And so I'm asking you today to trust this king. Trust this king who loves you, who's giving you hope, who's worthy to be praised. And He provides everything you need as He sends us. Let's pray. Lord, we celebrate and thank You. Give ourselves fresh to You in commitment to Your work in our lives. And we ask You, Father, that by Your grace and Your goodness, You would make us worthy servants of Your name. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Our triumphant King can be trusted because he provides hope in a world of doom, he is worthy to be praised, and most of all, he sends us, and he sends us with provision and with authority. Hope you've enjoyed this message preached today, Palm Sunday, at the Grace Evangelical Church in Congo Town. My name's Gene Brooks. Thank you for listening to Voices Along the Way. This podcast can be heard on Apple Podcasts as well as Spotify and a number of other platforms. God bless you.